This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, an Intellectual History Channel host, and today it's a real pleasure to be able to welcome back Robert Ovitz, lecturer in political science and public administration at San Jose State University and the University of California, Berkeley. Today, he joins us to talk about his latest book, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few, published by Pluto Press in 2022. Robert's previous research has focused on labor movement issues, and when we first spoke in 2020, he had just published an edited volume, uh, Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle, Strategies, Tactics, Objectives, also a Pluto Press publication. At that time, we had also spoken about his first book, When Workers Shot Back, Class Conflict from 1877 to 1924. Uh, published in 2018. He has written for a number of academic and popular publications and is currently an editor for the Journal of Labor and Society. Professor Ovitz, Robert, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today on the New Books Network about your new book, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few. Thanks for having me back, Keith. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Robert, it's a pleasure to be able to talk with you again as well. Um, last time we spoke, uh, you mentioned you were working on a book about the United States Constitution. And now here it is. You've moved on from global class struggle into the even more uh, contentious realm of critically commenting on uh, one of the sacred texts of the American creed. Uh, let me just read what retired UT law professor Sanford Levison wrote about your new book. And I quote, it's not a criticism to say that We the Elites is a bracingly old-fashioned book. It harkens back to a tradition that views the Constitution as a means of entrenching rule by property elites, a weapon of class conflict going back to 1787 and continuing today. That critique basically disappeared after World War II, but there remains much truth to it. It provides an important corrective to a culture that tends to engage in excessive veneration of the document and the political system it created. The question then becomes, what is to be done? In your preface to We the Elites, you note that the book has been many years in the making, going back, in fact, to your undergraduate studies and, and books like Michael Perenni's Democracy for the Few, 
and William Domhoff's Who Rules America. You also mentioned Charles Beard and his 1913 and economic interpretation of the Constitution. Before asking you about Beard, who seems like Carl Becker, whom you also mentioned, indicative of the kind of critique Levison was referring to uh, that disappeared after World War II, your, your preface had me thinking about listening to Perenni on Pacifica Radio, a thought-provoking source as uh, Chomsky was there. I think of Domhoff in relation to the study of power. His careful reasoning is well-supported across uh, a really prolific academic career. And like yourself, he makes a real effort to explain his line of reasoning in an understandable and really approachable style. For that matter, you share a similar thematic focus uh, with Parenti, and I think your reliance on primary sources for We the Elites and, and less on secondary source argumentation, arguably of necessity, at, at least in part, uh, was something Domhoff uh, would respect in, in terms of approach. You didn't mention uh, Michael Mann, and I, I bring him up only because of his class analysis and comments on the formation of the U.S. Constitution in the um, second volume of uh, the Sources of Social Power, which uh, Domhoff cited uh, quite favorably, especially in his uh, The Power Elite in the State. Can you share with listeners how Parenti and Domhoff influenced your own approach and style to analysis, especially as it bears on We the Elites? You point out also uh, that you actually uh, found precious little uh, in your research in terms of class analysis of the Constitution. Well, I would also add to that list somebody that I use in my introductory level political science class where I teach about U.S. and California government and politics, and that's Ira Katz-Nelson, who co-authored The Politics of Power, which until about 10 years ago, I still use the book, but until about 10 years ago, that book had been in in print for going on five decades. And what this group of scholars really have in common is what Professor Levinson was referring to, I think, in that, in that quote that you read, that this is a critique of the Constitution. And I think Levinson is right, that it has not really gotten a lot of attention, a lot of play. In fact, Parenti's book is no longer in print. He had continued to revise it and keep it current. Uh, Katz Nelson book, like I said, has been out of print. And uh, Domhoff actually, ironically, just updated his book for the first time in a long time. And I tip my hat to these folks in the beginning of the book because they really opened my eyes as a, first as a young undergrad and then decades later when I was hired to teach uh, my first political science classes, I went back and rediscovered Parenti and Domhoff and used those books for a few years. And one of the most interesting things that they did, which is very rare, is they used class analysis, very different kind of class analysis, but they used class analysis to get at why our constitutional system functions or doesn't function the way that it does. And what I what I draw from their work is that we really have to go to the primary sources, the letters, the diaries, the notes from the Constitutional Convention, the State Ratifying Convention, uh, the, uh, the pamphlets, 
as well as the Federalist Papers, even some of the early court rulings, some of the treaties, to really understand that our system really functions the way the framers intended it to function. And after really digesting their works for decades and teaching probably several thousand undergraduates over the last near two decades about the Constitution, it just occurred to me that we don't have a dysfunctional system at all. We have a system that works exactly like the framers designed it. And so I wanted to take their analysis to the next step and not just look at how our constitutional system was designed to serve the interests of the elites, but to actually impede and prevent the interests of the majority. I guess to kind of tie off that connection uh, of your influences, I, I, I noticed City Lights Bookstore and I was thinking if there was a kind of an indicator, <clears throat> indicator like the City Lights Bookstore indicator in, in terms of is the book offered by them kind of thing. Parenti has a number of books there. Dom Hoff has one. And now so do you with We the Elites. <laughs> so, so anyway, so if the City Lights bookstore indicator as uh, christened here today has any has any validity, then uh, you're you're in good company and you're certainly in good steed with uh, those scholarly influences. I'm, I'm very honored uh, that you noticed that. And I think City Lights noticed it right away, too, because I actually did my my book release talk with uh, Douglas Copeland and another scholar that was hosted by City Lights this past summer. So I was very honored after going to that bookstore for so many decades before I even lived here too, to uh, to be on, to share the shelf with Domhoff and Parenti. The idea that alternative voices uh, like your own Parenti, Chomsky, Domhoff, and now Robert Ovitz. So yeah, I. anyways, there it is, the City Lights bookstore indicator. So. Well, for those who may not be familiar with your work, let me point out uh, that you're not a constitutional or legal historian. Rather, you come at this from an interdisciplinary angle, uh, trained in social sciences. You're comfortable combining the work of, say, a Charles Tilley and, and, and the works of Karl Marx and examining social movements and class composition, as you did uh, in your analysis of labor struggles going back to the 1877 railroad strikes in your first book, uh, When Workers Shot Back. At the same time, you bring real-world, staff-level, state politics understanding, as well as nonprofit institutional experience uh, to bear, not to mention an understanding of the U.S. from the perspective of living overseas. As your UT mentor, Harry Cleaver, once wrote, the point of studying the world, including the past and others' writings, is not just to understand it, but to use that understanding to change it. That said, would you add anything in addition to your teaching and lecturing about political science and public policy related administration? How would you describe yourself in terms of your research, a political sociologist, a labor historian, a political activist? all of the above. And, and perhaps more importantly, how does it inform your focus as a teacher, a lecturer, writer? Well, you just tied together many interesting threads, Keith. Uh, thank you for that. I would add to your quote from Harry that 
I think also the purpose of doing this kind of critical analysis and investigation is to look at yourself as well, is to look at your own situation. And as the famous sociologist C. Wright Mills wrote about long, long ago when he uh, published a short, a short chapter in a book called The Sociological Imagination, he said that the function of a sociologist is not just to study the world and not just to look at the individual troubles, but to look at how those are connected to the larger social problems. And so what's really motivated me since I started on my first book, When Workers Shot Back, which I worked on for about a decade, is I was looking around and saying, well, why are things so bad? Why are things so wrong that I have to teach in three different institutions across five counties uh, and uh, often not know if I have enough classes to pay the bills for the next four months if if something's canceled? And I started to look at my own situation of why has higher education become filled with folks like myself, 70% of us are what are called precarious contingent professors who are hired on a class by class or semester by semester annual basis. And that that led me to really look broader at the situation of not just my situation, but to look at the larger situation of academic labor and then the situation of workers around the country and internationally and in the world. And then that brought me to uh, develop the third book, which is why is it so hard to change anything? And I fundamentally hit upon, well, this is what I'm teaching about. Students are constantly asking me and coming to me and saying, why was our system designed this way? Why do we still use an electoral college? Why do we have, why does a bill have to pass both houses exactly the same? Why do the courts get to throw out a law that was passed by elected representatives. And then I started thinking, putting these together and realizing, well, our planet is on the fast track to ecocide, to ecological destruction. We're essentially committing uh, planetary suicide, as the UN Secretary General put it a few weeks ago. And I realized the very thing I'm teaching about is the source of the problem. It's not just the source of the problem in our country, but it's the source of the problem around the world that time and time again, for decades, polls show that 70% plus most of the time of those polled want government to do something about climate catastrophe, and yet nothing happens. Year after year, nothing happens. And it just dawned on me that those who don't want to do anything about it, those who profit by keeping the status quo, can use the constitutional system to block what the overwhelming majority wants, and that is a survival for humanity and all the other species that are going to go down with us as we turn this planet into toast or where I sit right now, flood it <laughs> with extraordinary storms. Interesting, I, I guess, related story to what you're talking about there uh, with regard to uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you speak to that in relation to, you know, its its genesis in the, the Green New Deal and all? Sure. I actually wrote a piece about the Inflation Reduction Act a few months ago for a labor newspaper in New York City called The Chief that I write for three, four times a month. And I was really kind of flabbergasted at how so many people celebrated the Inflation Reduction Act as too little, too late, but a step in the right direction. And I couldn't disagree more. And the reason is it's 
its entire trajectory demonstrates exactly why I decided to write We the Elite. Several years earlier, uh, some left-leaning Democrats introduced what they called the Green New Deal into Congress. And I actually take my students through this. When we study how a bill becomes a law, I take them through this trajectory. The Green New Deal was introduced. It lacked some details, but the basic premise was we need to invest trillions of dollars in the near future to rewire our economy. We need to restructure our economy. We need to get off fossil fuels immediately. And it would include retraining people, employing people, uh, subsidizing the shift over to renewables, which is not a solution. It's not the end all, but it's it's an emergency step that the consensus is the planet needs to take. So that bill never really went anywhere. It passed the House, never got a vote in the Senate. So the pandemic hits and this becomes transformed into what Biden originally called the Build Back Better bill. And it was slimmed down from $6 trillion bill to about a $600 billion bill. So that bill passed the House and it couldn't get a vote in the Senate. Democrats control both houses. They control the White House. End of 2022, 2021, sorry, uh, the bill's held up by two Democratic senators who want the party to open up the bill and take things out and put things in that they want. The bill never passes the Senate. It doesn't even come up for a vote because of those two holdouts. Senator Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Sinema from Arizona. So that bill dies. And a few months later, suddenly there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which passes, I think, at the end of the summer, if I remember right, 2022. It's now down to half the size of Build Back Better. I'm sorry, Build Back Better was three and a half trillion dollars. It shrunk down to about a fifth of what Build Back Better was. And it doesn't do nearly any of the things that Build Back Better did. Build Back Better would have made all community college free across the country. It would have made the child tax credit, which pulled millions of people out of poverty during the pandemic, permanent uh, as, a, as a tax credit. Uh, it would have created the first paid family and sick leave nationwide. We, don't, we have unpaid parental leave, which very few people can take. Some states have some limited paid leave, but would have created that. Would have created massive subsidies to train people to put in renewable energy technology and so forth. And of course, it would have subsidized the renewable companies and the fossil fuel companies and so forth. But still, only a fraction of what the Green New Deal would have done. Now we get the Inflation Reduction Act, everybody's celebrating cautiously. What does it do? It pretty much strips out everything in Build Back Better except subsidies for the polluters. It's essentially a carrot that can now be dangled in front of the oil companies and the coal companies and the natural gas companies to essentially beg them to take the subsidy and get off fossil fuels. Well, they don't take it. There's no obligation. There's very little else. Uh, there's a couple of pharmaceuticals that the federal government can set the prices over the next five years or something like that. There's almost nothing of the first two iterations of the bill in there. Well, why is that? The reason is, for me, it's very straightforward. Those who are opposed to change have the advantage in our constitutional system. As long as the economic minority, the numerical minority, and here I'm not talking about racial or ethnic or gender minorities, the, the essentially the, the property elites who are the economic minority, if they don't like what's in a bill, 
they can block the bill anywhere in the House or the Senate. They can prevent it from getting ever to a committee. It can kill it in a committee, et cetera, et cetera. They can, they can kill it in one house, even if it passes the other house. Uh, even if a bill passes both houses, everybody votes for it. President signs it. It can still be shot down in the courts as unconstitutional. And of course, let's not forget the president can veto it. So all along the way are what I call minority checks. Rather than our system being a, a designed with checks and balances to protect the majority against the minority, we've got it backwards. Our constitutional system is set up to provide checks for the minority, the economic minority, against the economic majority. And so the Inflation Reduction Act is a perfect example of what we in political science call the sausage-making process. But the sausage-making process is not a symptom of our constitutional system of government. It's actually the way it was designed. It's the fundamental DNA of our system that if the majority is going to get anything, it has to give the economic minority say over what the economic majority can get. And that means that for 230 some odd years, we've hardly had any change, any fundamental changes. Every once in a while, every few decades or so, we abolish slavery, we extend the right to vote to women, we pass some environmental laws, we legalize the right to have a union, but those are few and far in between. And we're now going on half a century with virtually no important issues being addressed. And every two years, every four years, every six years, we wring our hands and say, oh, we just got to get the right person elected and they'll change things. Well, we do that over and over again and nothing changes. And when things get passed, they don't look anything like they were originally promised. Hmm. Well, you wrote, I think, in the uh, in the introduction that the real genius of the founding fathers said well, and I quote, the, the framers genius was in designing a virtually unchangeable system that provides the people with a semblance of participation and allows a few to select some representatives while the rest of us relinquish the power to self-govern. Uh, how and why they did that, uh, why it still functions in that same way and why we need to move past it uh, is the focus of uh, of this book. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the framers real genius as you understand it? Uh, and, and why should we? Well, I, I think you've already laid out the case here why we should reorient our veneration for the nation's founders uh, in terms of uh, its importance, uh, as uh, Professor Levinson wrote, uh, what is to be done. But but again, I think you've um, you've already uh, started down that road. So in a way, I suppose we're starting at the end, but um, we can work our way back uh, through your argument. Sure. Well, I think the genius of the framers, and there's no denying that their design of the system is pure genius, but it's not the kind of genius that I really admire or really works for our population or the planet, frankly, anymore, if it ever really did. It was a system that was designed by 55 primarily wealthy white men, including at least three of the wealthiest men in the country at that time, Robert Morrison, George Washington among them, who came to Philadelphia with a shared concern. All the 13 states had their own class system, their own local elites who profited tremendously from the economies of their own independent states. And those states were independent. They were independent countries who were cooperating in 
what's called a confederation under the Articles of Confederation, our first constitution. So they had some competing interests from one state to the other. So they come to Philadelphia with a shared concern about what I call the three insurrections, slave rebellions, native resistance to settler colonialism, genocidal settler colonialism, and small subsistence white farmers who are very openly engaged in organizing against the the economic elite's interests and are very powerful in some states, like particularly in Pennsylvania. And so when they get to Philadelphia, they come up with this, they essentially come up with a class compromise, a consensus among themselves as the economic elite, as what some would call the ruling class. They realize that they all have competing different interests, but what brings them together is their concerns about threats to property, that they see these three different insurrections as a threat to their property, and the Articles of Confederation is insufficient for protecting them. And I'll just give you a little example. At the end of 1786, there was an armed insurrection by Revolutionary War veterans who came back from the revolution, found now they had to have cold hard cash, which was in short supply, to pay a, a new owner's tax, which the state of, of Massachusetts had imposed in order to collect the money to pay off the wealthy creditors for their outstanding Revolutionary War debts. And so they they literally went home, put on their uniforms, packed their muskets and marched in formation and shut down local courthouses until they were met by a motley militia and mercenaries sent by the governor. Uh, they were defeated within minutes, but they broke up and carried out hit and run guerrilla campaigns throughout New England for, for the through 1787. And it's actually what really was the, the driving point that pushed many of the framers, I call them the framers rather than the founder, the founding fathers term I don't really like. And uh, Washington sent his uh, former general, uh, Henry Knox, into, into Massachusetts to carry out surveillance and report back to him. And I want to read you a, a little excerpt from a letter that he wrote to Washington, Knox said, in some of the counties, one fifth part of the people of little or no property are dissatisfied, more with their pecuniary than their political circumstances and appeal to arms. Their first acts are to annihilate their courts of justice, that is private debts, the second to abolish the public debt, and the third is to have a division of property by means of the darling object of most of the state's paper money. So here he was warning that the Shays Rebellion, under the joint leadership of Captain Daniel Shays, and there were two other leaders along with him, that if these ordinary small subsistence farmers got more organized and perhaps even linked up with the slave, the rebellious slaves and the Native Americans, they would wipe out private debts and redistribute land, redividing property, as Knox put it. And so the genius of these framers was that they came up, they looked at each other and said, let's see what we have in common. And they realized their commonality was protecting their property, whether it was slaves, land, outstanding debts that needed to be repaid, trade, and so forth. And they designed a constitutional system that would empower a new national government to protect their property, above all against the threats of what I call economic democracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You've shared the three insurrections, as, as you put it. Can you talk about that crucial period a little bit more, the, that 1776 to 1787 and, and how it figures into your thesis about the Constitution. What do we need to know about the period following the War of Independence and the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Well, I think the most important thing to know is that we didn't have a national government the way that it is assumed. Many Americans are misinformed about that history that followed the American Revolution. And and in some ways, we're inundated with what I call the myths, the founding myths. And I borrow that term from the historian Ray Raphael, who has a book by that title. We're inundated with the founding myths that are a system that was designed as a a, a national government that extends us rights, gives us the right to vote, uh, gives us the ability to govern ourselves. The reality is that it created a national government, but all the other things, they're not there. They're not in the original articles. I think the most important thing is to understand that the Constitution is our second Constitution. That first Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, created a very decentralized system that gave the states all the power, pretty much. The Congress was the only part of the Confederation government, if you will. It was a a unitary branch of government. There was only a legislature. The legislature could form a Supreme Court. It rarely ever used it. It didn't have an executive branch, so to speak. It picked members sent by the states to carry out the executive functions of implementing the laws passed by Congress. So from about 1783 until ratification, 1788, the uh, Congress uh, governed, but it was very weak because anything that wasn't in the articles, those powers belonged to the states. So the states were very powerful. They all had their own different policies. Some of the policies that were most threatening to the framers who show up, about 70 are selected to go to Philadelphia, but only 55 show up and only 39 end up staying around to sign it at the end uh, before it's sent out to the states by Congress. Those states really started to experiment with what I call economic democracy, where the small subsistence farmers were the most well-organized. They were able to form their own political parties and get uh, their allies elected to the state legislatures. Some of the states had very short terms of one year or two year. Some of the states were unicameral legislatures, so a bill only had to pass once. And very few states had any sort of veto of the governor. In fact, Pennsylvania didn't even have a governor. It had an executive council. The state courts had no power of judicial review. They couldn't throw out state laws as unconstitutional. It didn't exist in the states. And so it was relatively easy for any organized group, whether it be subsistence farmers who were the super majority of the population or merchants and bankers and traders to to get themselves elected and control the state legislatures and change the laws. But in a number of states, when the small farmers got into the legislature, they did things like pass debt forgiveness and impede the collection of back taxes. They Every state issued paper money during the revolution, ran up a debt of about $100 million 
of dollar value at the time, a huge amount of money, including the Congress. And instead of requiring that those debts be repaid with gold or silver, some states then changed the law and passed what are called tender laws, like in Rhode Island, where you could use paper money to pay off your debts. And for the property elites, that was a threat. Paper money was dangerous because it, they saw it as inflationary. If, for example, they had loaned $100 in gold or silver, they wanted to get $100 in gold or silver back plus interest. Or if they had bought somebody else's debt speculating, they speculated that they would get paid back in gold or silver. But in those states that said, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to allow people to pay their taxes or pay off these debts with paper money. They immediately attempted to resist that. There were also some states that did things like create uh, land banks where small farmers could put up their land as collateral to get small loans at very, very good terms, very low interest. And um, all of these different features made the state legislatures, the state governments, much more democratic than any of the state governments we have today. Although Massachusetts was kind of an outlier because it it kept its colonial era constitution. But many of the other states where they had these features, it gave the ability of the ordinary person, as long as they had enough property to vote and to run for office, because there were still those requirements, they could get into the state legislature, pass these laws, and those laws couldn't be vetoed or thrown out by the courts. The elites would have to counter and get control of the legislature to repeal the laws. And so they saw these, these states as too democratic, too much power at the local level, with the Congress too weak. The Congress couldn't pass taxes, it couldn't impose taxes, it had to ask the states to contribute through what they called the requisition system in order to fund the, the Congress. It barely had a military. It relied on the states to supply the militias and to fund the army during the American Revolution. It could negotiate treaties, but the states also often negotiated treaties, and it had no ability to, to overrule any laws of the states or even import taxes that states had where they taxed other states when their goods came into their state as a way to raise revenue. So all of this was seen as a real threat to the elite's property interest. There was another element of it as well, is that whilst a few states used these tender laws and in paper money in order to pay off most or even all of their Revolutionary War debts, the country essentially was broke. And I put quotes around, air quotes around country, because it was really 13 countries who were all cooperating through the Congress. And so the European powers saw this new young country as bankrupt and a credit risk. And the French knew firsthand because the government had defaulted on loans to France. And some of the elites led by Hamilton and Robert Morris were very single-minded that the only way to build an economic powerhouse, what Hamilton even called an empire, and to industrialize was to get those debts repaid. And that would restore credibility and that would ensure that foreign investors would now trade and invest in the country and it would open up the way to export slave produced goods, which was really the backbone of the economic system, slavery. And so in the constitution, you have these different features that make all of that possible. It takes away the power of the states to issue money. 
it uh, the federal government is responsible for repaying the debts. In fact, the debt becomes the supreme law of the land in Article 6. All debts must be paid. In Article 1, it establishes, in addition to the, the Congress's power over money, it establishes Congress's power to pass laws dealing with interstate commerce and bankruptcy. And uh, most importantly, it sets up the executive to enforce it. It sets up a military in Article 1, and in Article 3, it sets up the courts to hear cases dealing with law and equity. Now, judicial review is missing, but we can talk about that some more, but it evolves in the federal courts around the same time. So what they essentially put together is a powerful new national government that can share power to some degree with the states, but in the final say, it's going to be the federal government that tells the states what the law of the land is, according to Article 6, the Supremacy Clause. Maybe a, a, a bit forced, but I, I feel like um, lurking out there is your third influence from your that was mentioned in the preface, and that's uh, Charles Beard. And uh, one section in your uh, first chapter, uh, Framer's Vision, is a subsection called uh, Shared Interest. And you open that section uh, with a reference to Beard and his influential 1913 uh, publication and economic interpretation of the Constitution, as as we've uh, mentioned uh, previously. You go on to point out that uh, Beard's thesis, and I quote, uh, survived an onslaught of attacks for decades. You suggest that Beard's taken a few body blows over the years and and as I read that, I uh, I was reminded of Michael Kamen's 1972 People of Paradox. He says, um, there are some superficial ironies which are easily explained, but more perplexing and intriguing are the ambiguities one finds in the writings of such major figures as Frederick Jackson Turner, Charles A. Beard, Perry Miller, and, and others. In Beard's most famous book, for example, it's not at all clear whether he was saying that the founding fathers framed the constitution because they expected to profit by it or rather that the ways in which the fathers made their profits predisposed them to look at political and constitutional issues from a certain perspective beneath this equivocation in beard's historical statement lay a real ambiguity in thought and, and both were rooted in a decided dualism in Beard's position as scholar and publicist of the progressive era. Anyways, end of end of quote there. And sorry uh, for the extended uh, a bit there. And I wanted to compare that, though, or have you really compare that with something of slightly more uh, recent vintage? Uh, that's uh, Gordon S. Wood's uh, 1988 a review essay in the in the New York Review of Books titled uh, The Fundamentalists and the Constitution, the fundamentalists being scholars influenced by Leo Strauss, but but Beard makes an appearance. So Wood basically says, hey, look, uh, and I quote, Beard's influence was profound and his revolt against formalism had greatly affected American history writing in general during the first half of the 20th century. But his conception of making of the making of the Constitution by itself has not had much staying power. And then he, he goes on and he says, 
since 1913, Beard's narrow argument that the framers' interest in the Constitution was based on their expectation that their holdings of national bonds would increase in value under a stronger national government has been torn to shreds and no one pays attention to it anymore. But even Beard's larger aim that the Constitution ought to be seen as a consequence of historical circumstances and contending interests has not had the attraction for historians that it should have had. America's belief in the founding has generally overwhelmed uh, Beard's historical uh, revisionism. The reason for this uh, is not simply that the quasi-religious view of the founding reinforced by the Straussians has been so powerful, but that Beard ultimately was not a good historian. He was certainly right to treat the creation of the Constitution as the product of a particular historical circumstances, but, but in his eagerness to penetrate the godlike aura surrounding the Founding Fathers and to show them to be mortal men no different from 20th century American politicians with interests to protect and promote, he did violence to the differentness of the past and the distinctiveness of the generation of the Founding Fathers. Uh, talk about a beating and a bruising there. Uh, do, do you feel like any of that is fair? Well, I think Wood is about four decades too late in that critique. Uh, let's not forget, during the McCarthy era, Charles Beard came under vicious attack. There was uh, an entire book that was written by McDonald in the 1950s that purported to take issue with Beard's core thesis, but then ironically, after ripping his historical methods apart, and he makes a few good points about some of the problems in his interpretations, he essentially agrees with them. Okay. And that was that was held out as the penultimate critique of Beard. And so that's that's the period that I'm not familiar with that essay of Woods, but that's the period in which Beard disappears from the scene. Now, it's no accident that Beard has to be attacked at that point. He wasn't alone in that critique. He was part of the so-called progressive socialist um, movements of the time that had uh, started to publish some, some really biting criticisms and critiques of the Constitution. But where I take issue with Beard is that in his economic interpretation of the Constitution, he kind of muddles his argument by both saying that the framers were personally interested and stood to profit from the ratification of the Constitution because he said that nearly all of them had outstanding unpaid debts. They, they were creditors. And so by ensuring that the debts get repaid, like I talked about earlier, then they would personally benefit. And that's a mistake. The historians in the following decades pointed out that most of those creditors held very little there were a few that were large creditors, but most of the rest who held any outstanding government debts, they were small amounts. But the other part of his thesis gets ignored and to this day, and that is that Beard shows how they came together with a shared economic interest. There's no doubt that they were all, with one exception, extraordinarily affluent. Some you could even say super rich. One of the two who left early on and then the two uh, published their notes, which they snuck out of the convention, one of them was a middling lawyer. But for the most part, they were all wealthy in their own ways, like I talked about earlier. 
And Beard, Beard is forgotten for having pointed out that they overcame their own sectional and property divisions to figure out a way to protect all forms of property. And that really shows up in the in the transcripts of the notes that Madison published. He revised them, some would say, you know, censored and revised his own notes to make himself look good. And they were published right after he died. Um, and other sources that showed that they weren't in agreement by any means. Over and over again, they had to constantly wheel and deal in the way that slaves would be counted and whether they'd be taxed or not. And and in many other issues as well. So I actually think that Beard disappears off the scene, not for the reasons Wood gives, but actually because it was politically convenient to get rid of him and the entire early 20th century community of, of academic critics. And the reason is class was being thrown out the window. During the communist scare era, the second one, the McCarthy era, a new theory in my field in political science emerges, and it's called pluralism. And pluralism is essentially invented as a way to distract attention away from the class critique and to discredit it. And pluralism essentially argues there's no one dominant class. There are different groups, and groups can be dominant and lose dominance, and they can work with one another in order to achieve political power. But those those fluctuate and they change. Class is no longer important. The rich and unions, they're just two groups out of many groups that have to compete equally for power. And so when Wood is writing, he has swallowed pluralism. Wood comes out of American history as a pluralist. So it's no accident that he would say, Beard, ha, that's you know old-fashioned and falling out of uh, favor. But I have to say, Beard is yet to be rediscovered. But I'll, I'll I'll leave with this, and that is that Beard's book, The Economic Interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, is still in print. Yeah, and yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, Dover puts out a very inexpensive copy of it. The one book of his that isn't easy to find, I had to buy an original pressing, is his book on the Supreme Court, which is an extraordinary book, a little book of 100 pages, where he literally goes through and shows why the framers actually always intended for the federal courts to have the power of judicial review. And he shows in the record, I think, and this book came out before the economic interpretation of why they were almost all in complete agreement that that was a power. It was so obvious that the courts would have it that they never put it in the Constitution. The um, law professor, uh, Michael Klarman, and I think you you reference him yourself, uh, in the Framers Coup, he references uh, Beard in that book. Yeah. Um, and thanks for putting uh, Woods in context. He, he really does have some good scholarship, so it's not about picking on, on him. But I appreciate, too, um, your reference to the pluralism issue there. And Robert Dahl was all over that. And in your book, you bring Dahl up and, and make that point that, hey, here was the guy who came up with a theory that people bought into for, for, for a long time, kind of an institutionalized replacement of class analysis. And yet, and you can probably say it better than I, you bring it up that he has kind of a um, ch change of heart uh, near the end of his life. That's right. Robert Dahl, in fact, I consider him the father of pluralism. And I think it's one of his last books, if not his last book in published in his life, How Democratic is the American Constitution? Question mark. Well, he answers that very definitively in the book, that it's not democratic at all. 
And he doesn't have a class analysis, but he finally comes to terms with the reality that the framers were not Democrats, small d Democrats, you know, the most that the people should rule. Uh, and so he ends his life essentially destroying the pluralist understanding of the Constitution. And almost nobody pays attention to that book because it's inconvenient. It's another inconvenient truth mm. for the reasons you said. Another name, and um, I, I feel like maybe maybe dropped too many names uh, here today, but but I think it's it's nice to be able to do that uh, w- with you. Um, Harold Laswell uh, was a professor of law and political science during the Cold War, did some work with the policy cycle and, and communication theory. He has a definition of propaganda. And uh, David Sahat, a historian from Georgia State, m- made mention of this. And, and he basically said, look, Laswell's definition is that Propaganda is the management of collective attitudes through the manipulation of significant symbols. So Sahat, uh, in his book, The Jefferson Rule, and the rule being the idea that all politics must be tied to the founding fathers, and thus essentially uh, where the debate ends, uh, so the Jefferson Rule. So Professor Sahat has, has made the point that generally when people invoke the founders and the Constitution, and iteration of Laswell's definition is, is essentially at work. I, I figured you'd have your own thoughts uh, about uh, propaganda and the use of the, uh, of the framers, uh, more particularly uh, as, as an even more refined kind of symbolic subset. For that matter, uh, it's, it's kind of a reminder of Perenni's The Myth of the Founding Fathers lecture uh, in relation and relative uh, to your own work. There's certainly a lot to be said about you know, again, Ray Raphael's point about the founding myths in understanding contemporary politics, I think you make a good point that we often explain every contemporary policy issue by the framers rather than relating it to the Constitution itself. There's a, there's a lot of underlying assumptions that everybody knows what the Constitution says and what it means. And yet in my introductory level class, might be the only time that my students will ever have an opportunity to read the Constitution and talk about it. And we also read the Declaration of Independence out loud in class and and compare the two. And what a lot of students don't realize is that many of the fundamental principles that we think our system is founded on actually don't ever occur in the Constitution. That's because they're in the Declaration of Independence, a political broadside that justified revolt and insurrection and was a call for people to join that revolutionary struggle. For example, we don't have equal rights. We have equal protection. Uh, We don't have the right to change our government peacefully or by force, mentioned three times in the Declaration of Independence. In fact, the uh, far right, you could even say fascist militia leaders, who uh, have been convicted and are on trial right now for seditious conspiracy for attacking the Capitol on January 6th, they're learning the hard way that they should have read the Constitution because there is no right to overthrow the government (laughs) in the Constitution. Uh, In fact, the Constitution mentions in several different places in Article 1 and Article 4 that Congress and the president are empowered to set up the militias to repel invasion and put down domestic insurrections and violence. 
so the propaganda, if you will, that we are inundated with every day is that we are told that we understand the way our system works without really ever understanding what the founding document says and why it was written the way it was and what the implications are for us in our everyday lives. And I think that's the real propaganda. It's a, it's a kind of propaganda of absence. It's a propaganda of omission. For example, you know, I listen to a lot of news. I read on a daily basis, I read five news sources a day. Um, daily newspapers, web sources of news, uh, magazines. I listen to the news on the radio and a couple of networks, Pacifica, NPR, and so forth. And I am constantly finding myself exacerbated when I hear a politician, someone who was elected to office and has sworn to uphold the Constitution, who misquotes the Constitution, who says things that are in the Constitution that don't exist in the Constitution. It happens all the time. And this is a kind of, I, I'm just thinking of this now, it's a kind of propaganda by omission. Interesting, yeah. You make the point that it's time for political science to catch up with history. And I think the first line of that section, you say, hey, this is not a book of history, but of political analysis. How, how does that change your approach as you sat down to work on the book? Could you make, could you make a really a, a, a declarative statement and say, hey, look, th th this is not history going on here. Hey, this is political analysis. Yeah, you're right. I, at, the, at the opening of our talk, you outlined my eclectic background. I have an undergrad degree in government. I have two graduate degrees, including a PhD in sociology. I've worked for nonprofits. One thing you didn't mention is I worked in the Texas legislature for two members of the Texas House, one of whom is in Congress right now. I've worked for NGOs as a lobbyist and advocate. I've run an NGO and I've taught political science and sociology for almost two decades now. And so when I took on this task, I, I didn't want people to think that I'm a constitutional scholar or a lawyer or anything like that. What I wanted to do was to write a book that gets to the bottom of why things don't change. So as you could say, my overlapping, I'm multidisciplinary because I'm really a political sociologist. And that's how I got, I kind of jumped over this invisible fence to start teaching political science because of my, also my background, like I just described. And for me, the primary motive of this book is not about constitutional interpretation. It's understanding why things don't change. What is wrong with our theory of political change? And again, it goes back to the pluralist argument and the majoritarian argument. There's essentially three dominant theories in political science. Either things only change when the majority wants it to change. And we talked about that earlier. Majorities have almost an impossible task to get anything changed. They almost never get anything they want. They get a semblance of it or they don't get anything at all. So the majoritarian theory just doesn't hold water. We have an electoral college. That's not decided by the majority of votes. Um, and we can talk about other examples of that. The pluralist argument. Well, we hear this all the time. If, you know, if, if a social movement just gets enough people involved in the streets, they can put pressure on government officials and they will change the law or change policy. There's plenty of social movements. They don't change anything. Think of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, it ended up getting reduced to we're going to defund some of the police. Well, they've all been refunded again. The police didn't go anywhere. Millions of people were in the streets, including myself and my daughter. 
it didn't have any effect. Um, and then the third theory, which some refer to as elite theory, I call it plutocratic theory. And that's what I use in the book to really understand why does our system always work in the advantage of the economic elite with few exceptions. And those exceptions, like the historian Howard Zinn uh, famously described in his uh, in his book, People's History of the United States, is that ultimately when people are so well organized that they can disrupt the system so that it can't function as usual, that's when you see reforms. That's when you see concessions because the economic elite have no choice. They have to give something in order to keep the system from being dismantled. It is in those rare moments when things change, but they always change back. They always get killed by the death of by a thousand cuts when people aren't paying attention anymore, when they're not in the streets anymore, when they're not on strike anymore, then those changes get reversed. And you can just look at the Roe v. Wade ruling, how it got overturned uh, this summer, tragically. Um, and so what I wanted to get at with this book is as a political scientist, as a political sociologist, is political science, hey, my field, why are we teaching that if people vote, if people get into the streets in a social movement, that we can change the system? Because the evidence doesn't seem very convincing that, that those models work. What we really need to do is think about how the rules, and this is, here I'm going to quote from Senator John Kerry in his last day in the U.S. Senate when he was retiring to become Secretary of State for Obama. He literally said in his last speech, there are those who write the rules, determine the rules, design the rules to benefit themselves. I wish he had said that decades earlier when he joined Congress. It might have been a different country, but he says this on his way out the door. And he's absolutely right that the rules are designed by those with economic power. They translate that into political power. And we don't want to admit it, but they win time and time again. And they win so much that we have massive wealth inequality. So when I wrote this book, I wrote it as a, a political analysis rather than a constitutional or historical book, because I wanted to, to point out to my fellow political scientists and to those who are interested in politics that, hey, look at the historians. Decades ago, they already came to a pretty much a consensus about who the framers were and what their what their mission was. That's no longer debated anymore. I think that, you know, to go back to 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 Wood, you know, I think Wood is in the minority. You know, Wood Wood is a leading historian, um, you know, rose to the highest pinnacles of the historical field. But I, I don't think his position is the dominant position in, anymore. I think it's almost. You know, speaking as a non-historian, but what I looked at is that historians will, they might not repeat this, but they don't argue anymore that the framers were Democrats and they were trying to create a system of democracy. You're hard pressed to find a historian that will say that because they've looked at the evidence. They can see it. It's, it's, it's plain as day if you look at it. Political scientists don't look at the historical record. They are too caught up. We are too caught up in the day-to-day -day nuances of policy and conflicts in the political system that we don't under we don't really look at the design of it. And that brings us full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, is that that's why Domhoff and Parenti and Katz Nelson, and you also mentioned Professor Klamen, uh, whose extraordinary book, The Framers Coup. This is these folks, I think, are introducing this perspective into political science and law and and also Levinson, who's done some extraordinary books also on the Constitution. You know, I think if we're going to go in a different direction, 
Um, if we're going to transcend capitalism before it destroys our planet, we have to understand the Constitution. To understand our undemocratic Constitution, we have to understand our undemocratic capitalist economy. There's no way around it. And the framers were designing a system of government that would stabilize and expand the capitalist economy and use the government to protect it. The idea that the U.S. Constitution can be amended is basically a non-starter, although many states, uh, I'm thinking of Florida, regularly go through a process where they they change their constitution. But really, uh, your argument is basically that, hey, that isn't enough. And as far as the U.S. Constitution goes with its final authority, it, it's just not workable. Yes, and that's another one of the most important minority checks that's built into our, our Constitution, and that's Article 5. What you're referring to is the process for amending the U.S. Constitution or calling a constitutional convention. And the reality is extraordinary. When you just look at the record of how many officially introduced amendments there have been in Congress and how few have actually been ratified and added to the Constitution, there have been over 10,000 officially introduced amendments, only 27 of them have ever been ratified. And one took about 210 years, <laughs> the, the most recent one, the 27th one. Now, you know what that is, is a percentage success rate, 0.0027% or one quarter of 1% success rate. This is no accident. The framers designed the process to make it almost impossible to change the Constitution. And by doing that, it's essentially a love letter from the economic elites of the late 18th century to the economic elites of today. Hey, we've got you covered. We gave you a system that is almost impossible to change and it benefits your interests. And, you know, um, uh, trying to amend the Constitution, virtually everybody's given up on it. Trying to call a constitutional convention, I think maybe a good idea, but right now, the only real effort to call for a constitutional convention is funded by the last remaining Koch brother, a billionaire right-wing libertarian um, who wants to replace the constitution with something that would make things even worse. Mm. So that, that's too dangerous. And so I, in the last two chapters of my book, I talk about what I call the three options, amendment, constitutional convention, or direct economic democracy. And I, I really think that the only way we're going to democratize this country is by getting past the Constitution and democratizing our economy. We have to let the people who do the work take control of the economy and manage it democratically. And then once we do that, we're also at the same time directly democratically governing ourselves. If we don't democratize the economic system, any political changes or constitutional changes we make will ultimately be overwhelmed by our undemocratic capitalist economy. Is there a, a final moral to the story, so to speak, uh, that relates back to a little boy going with his mother to an ERA meeting in the <laughs> 1970s or 80s and the fact that the amendment has not been ratified? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're talking about my story in, in the chapter on constitutional amendments. Yeah, my mother brought me to an ERA meeting when I was a little kid because I think she didn't have anybody to watch me. And here we are. You know, my almost my entire lifetime later, and not only do women not have constitutional rights, women are not mentioned in the Constitution except for the right to vote, uh, but they're not mentioned in the Constitution as having equal rights. 
and a simple, very, very brief amendment came up short. And in fact, there's a great Hulu TV series, uh, a short series uh, about that, that campaign, that struggle. And essentially half the population it doesn't realize it, but they're actually excluded from the Constitution. And the only way that women can get rights other than the right to vote under the Constitution is they have to rely on the courts or they have to rely on Congress. But even then, the courts can throw out anything Congress does. So that impossibility of getting the Equal Rights Amendment ratified demonstrates just how hard it is to change the Constitution. Could this be your next project? There's some real history going back to Alice Paul, as you know, the head of the National Women's Party in the 1920s. I say that and really it's kind of lead in to ask, uh, what, are you, what are you really working on these days? Uh, so my next book I'm co-writing with Divya Sundar is going to be an analysis of nonprofits and NGOs in capitalism. And this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about the dominance of pluralism, how uh, nonprofits have really overwhelmed what I call class struggle. They've replaced the struggle over the economic system to a struggle over issues. And so that's that's what I'm working on uh, next. And then I think I'm going to come back to the Constitution in a bigger sense for the fifth book. I want to take my last chapter and do a whole book on how do we get past the United States we have today? What's the what's the trajectory? What's the pathway beyond it? Because I don't think anyone's really thinking about that. I think there's so much pessimism that we're really having a hard time really trying to envision how do we get past the the system that we have that doesn't work for the overwhelming number of people in the country and around the world. It's inspiring to see you continue to, you know, work that kind of Harry Cleaver angle, if, if that's a fair way to say it, or to try to answer the Levinson question there of what is to be done. And I appreciate your indulging me on, on some of these questions. Let me ask you, if you were going to teach a graduate seminar, say, on U.S. constitutional history and meaning, hey, what would your primary readings consist of? <laughs> well, I'm glad you're asking that because I got to get up the, the courage to propose this to my department. I, I want to teach a special topics class. It would be an undergrad class. Uh, for poli-sci majors, it would be a senior seminar, actually, to explore the anti-federalist critique of the Constitution. There were far more uh, anti-federalist articles and letters written uh, than there were federalist papers, and uh, but most of them didn't really get much circulation because the federalists controlled the overwhelming presses, and they actually banned the anti-federalists from the mails, and they censored them. They kept them out of most of the newspapers. So although they, they won the ratification vote in a few states, they ultimately lost and the Constitution was ratified. But much of their critique is still very relevant for us today. And in a kind of act of, of academic censorship, you can't actually buy an incomplete copy of all the anti-federalist papers. You can't even find them online. You can find bits and pieces of them here and there. You can find a few of the more famous essays. But the University of Chicago Press stopped publishing a, a bound printed volume of the anti-federalist papers. So I would like to teach a class looking at the anti-federalist critique of the Constitution. Right. And so a uh, compilation of their work would be uh, something uh, that you'd recommend then or, or use as the primary source for the class. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you're asking about that because a few years ago, 
I applied for a fellowship from the National Institute for Humanities to do exactly that, to put together a book of readings of the Anti-Federalists. And they turned me down. <laughs> it was going to be the it was going to be the the next volume after this book, <laughs> but it'll sure. have to. Yeah. Um, well, let me just end then uh, by sharing uh, what Gerald Horn, uh, author of the Counter Revolution of 1776, uh, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the USA, wrote about your book. Uh, and I quote: "This ambitious, stimulating, thoughtful." exceedingly informative book sets a new standard in scholarship on the vaunted, dare I say, overrated U.S. Constitution. Um, thanks for sharing your time and insights uh, with us today, uh, Professor Robert Ovitz, about so many things, uh, but most importantly, about your latest book published by Pluto Press in 2022, uh, We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves the Few. Thank you, Keith, again, for just a, a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation.